You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Welcome to a special edition of the Garden Report podcast from the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. My name is Jared Weiss, and we have a pair of great episodes for you from Sloan. Now, in the next episode, I speak with two leaders in analytics from tech giant SAP and new NBA partner Second Spectrum, who have revolutionized the way data is consumed and used in the NBA. But first, in this episode, I sit down with Celtics Director of Basketball Analytics, David Sparks. He joined Assistant GM Mike Zarin and Community Relations Manager John Borders for a presentation earlier in the day on their community outreach program, Step Your Game Up, which Zarin actually called the first statistically significant sample uh, example of a franchise making an, an impact in the community. Now, Sparks, in just his second interview that he has done since joining the Celtics, according to him, discusses the details of their program and how they quantified its impact on improving at-risk student school performance. But halfway through the interview, we then transition the conversation to his role in the Celtics front office, how Danny Ainge utilizes their analytics program, and how the team handles the trade deadline in the draft, among many other things that are very pertinent over the past few weeks. This conversation runs a little over half an hour and is absolutely a must-listen for anyone who is, whether you're interested in working in analytics or you're interested in getting a deeper understanding into the intricacies of how the front office works, you're going to enjoy this conversation. Now, before we begin, I want to talk about Harry's razors. I actually used my new Harry's razor to shave before I went to Sloan each day and showed up with the baby soft skin that is just hard to find with any razor on the market. If you go to harrys.com slash garden report, you'll get the Harry's trial set for free when you sign up, which comes with a full blade set as well as a shave cream and a post-shave bomb. Now, I ditched my cartridge razors years ago because they were just, they were too expensive. They were really ineffective and they didn't last long enough. But not only is Harry's more affordable, it actually performs probably better than the old cartridge razors I used in the past. It's more convenient than the safety razor that I use now. And I've cut down my morning shave time, which used to take me five minutes to just one minute now, which is obviously really important when you're trying to get out the door in the morning. 
It's got five German-engineered blades. It's got a lubricating strip. It's got a flex hinge for a comfortable glide, a trimmer blade that I use to align my beard on my jawline, and a weighted handle, and it's only $2 a blade. Harry's is so confident in the quality of their blades, they want you to try their most popular trial set for free, and I'm using that trial set right now, and it's fantastic. So go to harrys.com slash garden report. That is harrys.com slash garden report. Now let's talk to Celtics director of basketball analytics, David Sparks. Why did you guys decide to start investing your time and energy into quantifying the effectiveness of the program? So I think it was Judy Paliuka's idea sort of both to start Step Your Game Up and to try to quantify the results. Um, I, I think that she has read some of Dan Ariely's work. He's a professor at Duke who's a behavioral economist and is interested in incentives. And um, Step Your Game Up is essentially about trying to find incentives that will get students to respond. And the Celtics and, you know, spending time around Celtics players and getting to you know, Celtics games, that's, you know, for some students, that's a really great incentive. And um, in this situation, we were able to find a school system, Lawrence Public Schools, who was very willing uh, and interested in, you know, having this program in their schools. And also, one nice thing about being in a school setting is the data is sort of already there. There are people who are going to be grading students and counting their attendance whether we are interested in it or not and so in that sense it was very very easy to get the data on how students responded to the program you can imagine other situations maybe outside of the school where getting data on how things work is much harder you might have to survey or or send a questionnaire in or something like that but this for the most part the data was there um we did have people in the schools keeping track of who was offered a contract and who signed and did not sign the contract to join Step Your Game Up. Um, we also had people uh, keeping track of, we had these sort of more short-term things which were called interim challenges, which were like, you know, attend so many out of the next so many days and things like that. And... So those, there were some additional data requirements, but in general, this was sort of a nice, easy way to get data and a really good program to test out the idea of quantifying the impact. And so you guys felt that the program was significantly effective in helping the people that were participating? So, yeah, I would say statistically significant in you know the very narrow statistical sense, especially at least in, in terms of students' grade improvements. Um, I think... Even without running the numbers, talking to the teachers and the people from the Celtics who were working with the students, anecdotally it seemed like it was, I think, fairly clearly influential in you know, helping students in some way. Uh, I, met, I got the chance to meet with some teachers in Lawrence at the beginning of the fall semester, and they were all very excited that Step Your Game Up was coming back for the 16-17 academic year. So I think their, their sense on the ground was that this is a great thing to have in schools. This is useful for the st- useful to get the students engaged, and that the students were excited about it. So, even without the data, I think, I think, there was you know a feeling that that there, it was significant in sort of the conventional sense. But then, yeah, it was really nice to 
to find that um, in like the technical statistical sense there, there was also a significant difference for students who were in the program. So, okay, so for those who are listening who, uh, like, can you walk us through the actual numbers that you had that sure. what was working? Sure, um, So I should also just sort of backtrack and talk sure. briefly about the program. Essentially, the idea is um, at these, I believe it was seven middle schools in Lawrence, um, students were um, evaluated at the end of the first grading period to see what their attendance was and how they were doing in English language arts and math classes. And if their grades and attendance, sorry, grades or attendance were below a certain threshold, they were offered the opportunity to enroll and step your game up, specifically to improve the places where they were sort of lacking. And if they chose to enroll and step your game up, uh, their parents signed a contract, their teachers signed a contract, and they signed this contract. And then there's this really cool signing day event where they went and got a, a hat and held up a jersey and got their photo taken, and you know, a big deal was made about that. So from there. Then if students improve their grades and attendance to certain objective criteria, then they are offered the opportunity to go to a Celtics game or certain other sort of prizes. And um, so we were looking at whether students who were, I mean, specifically the real question is, of the students who were offered the opportunity to participate, the students who were you know, experiencing low grades and low attendance in the first period, did the students who enrolled in Step Your Game Up uh, improve more and were they more likely to improve than students who chose not to enroll in Step Your Game Up. And essentially the model I built attempted to control for some um, some initial conditions around the students. For example, the higher your initial grade, the less likely it is that you are going to improve your grade. And so we wanted to, to control for initial grades. And so the model suggested that um, essentially at a, a statistically significant level, um, students were more likely to improve their English language arts grades and more likely to improve their math grades um, and more likely, although not significantly so, to improve their attendance. And just to be specific, since you asked, um, the way I've been thinking about it is if you took 100 students who were eligible for the program and offered them the opportunity to enroll and all 100 of them chose to enroll versus none of the 100 choosing to enroll, you would expect, I think it was 18 more students in the second period to improve their English language arts grades, 16 more by period three. Um, and that's sort of compared to what they would do if Step Your Game Up didn't exist. Um, and then I think it was like uh, 11 students and nine students would be expected to increase in math and then some smaller number in attendance. Um, so, and then if you just want to look at the actual magnitude of change, I think it was something like nearly a half grade point improvement um, attributed by the model to step your game up in English language arts and then a smaller like 0.2, 0.1 grade point increase on average for students in math and then uh, like a day and a half or maybe two days increase uh, for students uh, who were enrolled for attendance. So most of the students that you were targeting seemed to be they were like below C they were in the D's and F ranges. Right. Yes, that was so was was a big part of this just giving them incentive to actually care and put effort into school and to show up to school for the most part. So I th I think that was a lot of it. You know, for some people, getting good grades is sort of like intrinsically rewarding. For some people, maybe they're sort of future and career-minded, and they know that, you know, middle school is setting the stage for high school and beyond. Um, but 
for other students, sometimes it's just hard to motivate, be motivated, and maybe you don't even realize, you know, why it's important. And so I think this is just a way maybe to get students at the margins to spend a little more time thinking about how they can get their grades up. Mm-hmm. Um, and specifically, I think Judy targeted the lowest performing students because there are other programs that you know, sort of try to target all students or some sort of like middle performing students and um, don't necessarily devote resources to the students who are like most at risk. And I think that was an important part of this program for her. Um, and, and from my perspective, I think that that's a great population to work with because, you know, in some sense, that's where you might expect to see the largest marginal improvement. Now, were you able to gleam any evidence or hope for permanent behavioral change? Permanent is tricky. And since we have only been in Lawrence for one year, we're currently in our second year in Lawrence, but I haven't seen the data yet, obviously. Um, that's something that I can't speak to at this point, but it's something I'm very interested in, in seeing if students enrolled last year, did they sort of persist in their performance improvements, thing like that. Um, you know, I, think, I think that's honestly a lot to hope for, but I think the potential is there, and you know, I, obviously that would be you know, a great finding. Um, but it's not, it's not clear without more data. So, I mean, anecdotally, what what kind of mentorship aspect is there with the kids just getting to interact with the players, even if for a very short period of time and one day? I mean, have you seen, quantitatively too, if you have some sort of data reflected, that just getting to meet these people, getting to interact with people that they look up to, does that right. just spark some sort of change? So that's not something we've quantified. And I think, you know, it's one interesting thing about this program is, it lent itself well to quantification, and other things are a little more difficult to do. Uh, I myself, you know, I was somewhat involved in um, designing what the data should look like, and then uh, I did the data analysis, but I actually wasn't on the ground. So, you know, um, we've, we had some kids come this year to the Celtic practice facility, and um, there were some players hanging around after practice, and they shot together and were playing like knockout and things like that. And it looked like a lot of fun. There was a DJ. Um, so were you the DJ? I was not the <laughs> DJ. Um, no, my turntable skills are sorely lacking, unfortunately. But um, but you know, I, I mean, I can't put a number on fun, unfortunately, or fortunately. And so, uh, but for you know, to really, I think get a good handle on what it was like for the kids, I, I talked to Jan. I'm, I'm sure there's someone trying to put a number on fun somewhere else. Yes, so probably yes. someone in this no, and right I think everybody alone. here has been accused of doing just that, right? So, um, Or taking the fun out of things, but uh, that's far from what I'm trying to do. Well, no, I've talked to Isaiah Thomas a lot about his motivation to work in the community, and he's been, well, he was awarded for it by the NBA. Mm-hmm. Um, have you shown the? Have you discussed this stuff with the players? Shown them the results, and has that been a motivating factor for them to? I have not. Participate more. Uh, um, I mean, now that we have, you know, this sort of very presentable message that we shared today, I think that that's something you know we could potentially talk to the players about because the players are sort of the the reason the kids care. You know, like um, you know, the opportunity. The opportunity to meet me is not worth much to the students. Hey, it's exciting for me. <laughs> well, I appreciate that, but uh, but you know, it's the players who are sort of 
um, in some sense, doing a lot of the work. So I'm sure they'd appreciate knowing that it did make a difference. Have you had like a, a parallel uh, in the basketball operations side of trying to get buy-in and trying to figure out ways to communicate buy-in and use data? Were you doing it for the kids? Is there a basketball, uh, I guess, equivalent to that? So our organization, I, I can't really speak to other organizations because my experience is entirely with the Celtics, but... Um, Danny and Mike, Danny Ainge and Mike Zarin have done a great job of sort of integrating all of the staff in lots of different aspects of decision making. And Danny is, is very willing to listen to, you know, anyone making a reasonable argument. He's very open-minded about lots of different kinds of evidence. Um, Mike obviously has been doing this kind of thing for years um, and has really laid a lot of the groundwork for how the Celtics front office thinks about data relative to scouting, relative to you know, other kinds of, of ways of thinking about basketball. So uh, I have had the privilege of not really needing to um, argue for buy-in in the front office. Um, it's, I do have to argue for um, you know, why my methods are reasonable and why I believe what I believe, but uh, I think quantitative evidence is accepted as very legitimate in our front office, which is, you know, I think a, a great thing. And I'm sure it's happening around the league more and more. Um, but that's really been a, one of the privileges of working with the group we have. I, um, it's not this, you know, sort of canonical money ball struggle between the scouts and the, and the stats guys. It's, you know, everybody knows something about everything. And so we're very conversant in each other's language and, and, um, and it's not ideological. I mean, Danny's notorious for calling on one random person and saying, all right, should we make this trade or not? That kind of thing. Yes, so, yes. I'm so, sure you've probably been under that So kind of you have to be ready, you know, but, like, um, that's, it's, it's really a motivating, it's really motivating to know that um, your opinion might, might matter in some sense. Obviously, everyone who does any kind of work wants their opinion to matter, and, um, and wants their work to matter. And so it's, it's been really a privilege for me to be in a situation where the things I say are not just you know, like set aside as, you know, oh, those are what the numbers say. Let's move on to the real stuff. So, um, yeah, it's, it's been a very good experience. I mean, it's kind of the same connection to the kids being incentivized by meeting these children. And right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I'm trying to cover both no, sides. No, here, you're but, right. I mean, do, do you see that having to just teach the children just like I'm sure you're experiencing in your job where having your opinion and just your existence valued by another yeah, person. Yeah, no, that's a very good force. point. Yeah, yeah. I am responding to incentives. That's very true, very true. I appreciate that. I don't mean to degrade your individuality as a human being, but... Hey, yeah. hey, I res- I'm, uh, I'm a homo economicus. I respond to incentives and I try to be rational to the extent I can and uh, make sense that when my work is valued, I, tr- I try to put a lot of time into it. So, What do you think has been like the biggest incentive for you since you've gotten into this line of work? I am very competitive, and I want the team to win, and I, um, I always say my maximand is expected future championships with a discount. So more approximate championships are worth more than very distant, but I still want to win championships 20 years from now. Um, but I'm competitive in the sense of wanting to win games, wanting to win championships. But I also want our uh, our data group to be the best. I want our communication to be the best. I want the models we build to be the best. And um, because teams never talk about this stuff, it's really hard to know. But you know that 
I'm always sort of imagining, you know, other teams are like, are on the edge and we have to, you know, be at the edge or beyond. And so, um, so that's been a real motivator for me. But how do you guys deal with patience? Because that's the hardest thing in every field imaginable. Yeah. Obviously, it's something that is very at the, at the precipice for your organization right now. Yeah. How do you, I mean, do you value the current over next year? And is there, is there kind of a kind of a standard decrease in value of every single year where you go further out? So patience is really interesting. And especially for a statistician, a long-term view is a very useful one to have. Um, because short-term anything is so subject to variance that you, know, you have to discount it a lot. And so, um, so I'm sort of always thinking about, you know, the, what's best for the team tomorrow night and then what's best for the team three years from now. Um, you know, sometimes you have to make trade-offs in decisions, you know, fortunately... No, it's Danny's role is you know sort of making those hard decisions, and uh, my role is to sort of try to inform those to the extent I can. And um, yeah, I guess that's all I have to say about that. No, you know, have to, about I figured. Cut, cut I didn't say there. any names on purpose, yeah. but I mean, do you do you think that the organization can kind of communicate and value patients all the way through better than maybe you see in the from analyzing the actions done by other organizations. There's so many organizations that, I mean, you guys are on the other end of it where Brooklyn made this trade that I would say was maybe the most, the biggest signifier of impatience in any trade in my lifetime. And they paid a huge price for it, which was to your benefit. Do you think that you can see, I mean, that's kind of, it was also the flip side for you guys where the Celtics are willing to sacrifice players that, you know, were had significant emotional value and good on-court value but maybe for a short period of time to have to go through this period where over a long period of time they were going to see significant benefit. And four years ago, that seemed like it was four years away, and now it's a couple weeks away for the next pick. Right. You already have Jalen Brown, who anyone that watched the last couple weeks of Jalen yeah. Brown is probably extremely excited about what he for can sure. become. For sure. So I was not working for the Celtics full-time when that trade was made. That was a couple months before I started full-time. I was still in North Carolina at that time. But... Um, I remember at the time of that Nets trade thinking the Nets are very likely to win this year. I, I was, I mean, we, we all thought that. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, so, and if you go back and read like the trade grades on ESPN, the Celtics got a reasonably good grade, but the Nets got, you know, a pretty good grade. And so, like, context matters in all these things. And it's also just the case that based on players' career trajectories and the financial situation of any given team, sometimes it just makes sense to be playing for a more immediate future than for the long run. Sometimes you're... Sometimes you've planned for this to happen. Sometimes circumstances force it upon you, right? Um, you know, everybody has their own opinions about the relative merits of any trade that happens. But one thing that I've found sort of being in the front office as opposed to being a fan is there's so much you don't know about everything right and you know you can't you can't assume perfect rationality on the part of front office actors but um, I think in general most people probably deserve more credit than they get when they do something that at least superficially doesn't seem like a great move there's almost always some good reason 
that, you know, for whatever reason has not been made public. And I mean, that, <clears throat> I know that sounds like sort of a, a, a generic, you know, cop-out sort of excuse, but like, you know, you know uh, there are a lot of human beings involved in all these things, and it's not just moving around pawns on a chessboard, so... Well, my, my favorite joke I saw today at Sloan was uh, someone, there was some thought board or something like that about, like, the issues with analytics. And the, my favorite one was um, the assumption that humans are rational. Because <laughs> sure. so much of data analysis is the assumption right. for that people are going to make the most logical choice based on data. Right. But as we, the debate the past few years of this conference has been how much do front offices, how much can they deal with the push and pull between anecdotal evidence and traditional analysis and and the new advances we have in analysis. Right. I feel like now it's more about are people over-reliant on raw data analysis and can they still apply the classic and visual context that they kind of determine yeah. in their brains that we're still trying to figure out how to quantify it. And it's people from the outside observing you and someone's covered this, covered this team for a while now. Most people feel that like the Celtics balance that as well as anybody else out there where human irrationality doesn't get in the way as much as it does in other places. And you know, there's so many times where a trade happens and people assume incompetence on the part of one of the actors. Mm-hmm. You don't have to say anything about it, but Sacramento is the team that people are picking on for that right now. And you know, there, there are so many people involved with these decisions in some places where one person just kind of overthrows everything and they, they might not be acting rational about it. But most of these decisions in most of these organizations are made through careful consideration, through analysis that's been going on for months. Yes. I mean, you must analyze all potential things that could be happening on a daily basis throughout the entire year, I'd imagine. So right. you come in with a significant degree of information yeah. and you can make a very informed decision when something comes up just like that. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, like I said earlier, I, I aim for rationality, but ra- rationality is a simplifying assumption, but it is still an assumption. And, um, yeah, if I'm doing my job well, we are prepared on any given day to answer any given question. Well, has there been like a, a trade, like a trade proposal call comes in, and then they come to you and they say we need we need quick analysis on this within an hour to make a decision on this. You guys had to kind of work under the gun. So I think that happens more rarely now. We have really good infrastructure built up, built up, so that um, a lot of the models that Drew Cannon, who's another statistician, and I build. Um, are really well communicated with the rest of the front office. And so uh, it does happen from time to time where there's some specific thing that we haven't really spe- we haven't you know, built an explicit model for previously. Um, but typically, I, I think we do a reasonably good, a good job at sort of conveying a lot, a wide variety of useful information on any given player um, without having to do sort of a bespoke analysis as as things come up bespoke analysis it's very good branding i yeah. like that yeah is it bespoke or bespoke i, I think bespoke okay. depends where you are if we're in britain i think uh, we call it bespoke so analysis i won't affect that like aluminium yeah to all of our british uh, audience <laughs> yeah. i apologize um and then what about for for draft picks do you guys have a consistent modeling kind of along the lines of what you have for players where you can analyze the value of the draft that comes coming in? Yeah, it's a, a big part of what we do around this time every year is we try to iterate on the existing draft model, make it better. And it's hard, you know, um, projecting players in different contexts is not easy. And uh, I wish we could say that 
I wish we could say that we were perfect, but we're not there yet. Um, but yeah, that's that's definitely a large part of what we do in, in like tournament time and, and after. So I was just talking to SAP's uh, basketball development head, and they were talking about how something they've really been, really been promoting this week is they're working with Duke now to kind of expand their, kind of give them the sport food capability. Mm-hmm. Do you, have you seen over the past couple of years that it, an improvement in the kind of data and analysis you can do of prospects because of optical tracking and other information that's available now? I think it's still really limited. I think it's in just a handful of arenas, sport view is. And so that fairly severely constrains what you'd be able to do. Um, so for the most part for prospects, we're working with play-by-play type data, box score type data, and then you know, a couple of other, couple of other things we can add. Um, but I, I am hopeful for getting sport view cameras in every arena in the world. You know, like I am a voracious consumer of data, and if you offer it to me, I will take it essentially. And so, you know, um, I look forward to a future where you know lots more things attract and lots, and we can sort of watch a, a player's career evolve from you know amateur level to the end of their NBA career. So we're gonna have sport view for fifth, like fifth graders in YMCA. Yeah, I'm sure there there need to be some limits on the surveillance we're putting yeah. these sport kids I think under. Maybe college is a good place to start. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Do um do do you get us how how much of a growth do you get in the quality of analysis you can do from the player tracking data that you're getting from sport view and second spectrum, which is really taking over compared to the just the significant iterations that have been made on play by play data. It's it's a really big difference. I mean, just like. The pick and roll, for example, is such a big part of the game, and pick and rolls are not found in the play-by-play data. Play-by-play is fairly specific about what happens on any given possession, but pick and rolls are not there. And so, you know, and that's just such a good example of something that, you know, you could watch and sort of manually tag previously, and people have done that, but, you know, having computers that are able to identify pick and rolls and label them by type and by defense and things like that, it's it's made a really big difference. I mean, are you guys paying attention to, like, the, the distance that you're sitting, that you're zoning up on a pick and roll with your big and stuff like that? I mean, I, and before you say I can't reveal the secret sauce, I'm going to assume almost everyone out there is doing it. I know the Second Spectrum guys are talking about how we can do that kind of stuff, but, I mean, is that is the biggest value that you're getting is to be, is to be able to just kind of micro-analyze, you know, positioning, stuff like that, the kind of stuff that we look at, we say that guy, he had his right foot back too far and he had his hips too far open, that's why he got around him, stuff like that. So one thing that Mike used to tell everybody who asked him, and now I tell everybody who asks me, they say, you know, how can I get a job like yours? And I say, the one thing we don't need is another all-in-one stat. Like, we don't need a ranking of how, you know, with Chris Paul and LeBron James and Kevin Durant at the top down to the bottom. We don't need one of those. Like, there are plenty of those that exist. And so now what the sport view data stuff is allowing us to do is look extremely narrowly at lots of different aspects of the game. And, um, you know, you still have to sort of identify the, the value of each of those aspects of the game. But it's, it's really letting us get a good sense of what players are good at, what skills and... Um, you know, sort of rather than a top-down approach, giving a, a, a bottom-up approach. I, I was going to ask that at the end of Alaska. Now, so many people that are going to be listening to this interview are probably people that wanted to be at Sloan, and they're wondering, how do I get this job? Mm-hmm. I was just talking to someone representing a large university that they're looking into creating a degree program that's focused on sports analytics. Mm-hmm. They're trying to figure out 
one, how do we create a degree program that gets people in position to get jobs like yours? Right. How do we identify what are the jobs that they really want out there? But for you, based on just your experience of what you see of people that do this job well, what do you think? What do you think a prospective student should be doing right well, now? You threw me a softball, and so I have a whole spiel on this. And Go that for basically, it. I want to hear it. basically, my feeling is that if you are an undergrad, it will never be easier for you to learn the things you need to learn because you have a whole administrative body that wants you to succeed, and you have professors who are probably some of the best in the world at what they do, and they are in most cases, very willing to help someone who's interested in something they care about. If I'm a stats professor and a student comes to me and says, hey, I want to learn how to do this so I can you know, look at basketball in a new way, I would love that. I would love to engage with you and kind of give you specific advice and direction. Um, but you know, So I always wish I had taken more stats classes and more computer science. Um, you wish you had taken more. Yes. I'm in that position as someone that's trying to figure out how to do Python and R so I can mine data off of MBA.com right. yeah. and stuff like that. As far as I'm concerned, I mean, there's I, I, I write code, but I am not what I would call a programmer. Mm-hmm. Um, and people who are are always amazing to me. They're, they can just make computers do whatever they want. And I can make R do whatever I want, but not not computers in general. So there are you know, lots of different kinds of skills that uh, I wish I had spent more time learning when there were people like holding my hand and trying to help me help me perfect. It has been, become easier in the last couple of years to go online and learn things. You know, um, Code Academy has a pretty good introduction to R, and I think several other different programming languages. Those are that's probably a good place to start. But um, I always feel like uh, it's useful. It's always been useful for me to have a project where I can imagine the thing that I'm trying to achieve, even if, even if I don't know how to get there, and then basically just use Google and Stack Overflow, and maybe my professors can give me some advice or friends. Um, if you're in graduate school, your friends or, the, or, the, or the, uh, the cohorts ahead of you are great sources of advice on this kind of thing. Um, uh, but having a project to work toward is a really good way of organizing things and just answering one question at a time. You know, like. Where can I find the data? Okay, I found the data. Now, how can I get that into a spreadsheet? You know, and then what can I do with it from there? So, like, piece by piece, it's a good way to build skills, I feel. And then the other advice I give to literally everybody is to start a blog. Now, I started a blog, and um, Mike saw the blog, and so he was familiar with my work when I applied for the internship. And um, we hired Peter Bashai, who um, built an amazing internal website for us. Um, and... That is mainly because he posted a website called Buckets. I remember that site. And that was a class project. And it was so much better than anything anyone else was doing online that when we had that job open up, it was obvious that Peter was the guy. So we just reached out to Peter. And so um, I feel like it's, it's so much more useful for me as someone who's thinking about hiring than a resume is because a resume... Is it's very hard to discern from a resume how good someone is at the things you need them to be good at. Um, whereas if I can go to your website and read your writing, read your analysis, see the originality of your ideas and how well executed they are, um, that that takes the burden off the person who's doing the hiring. And I think in general, it's probably good to try to take the burden off those people. So, 
And it kind of gives them a chance to work it, kind of educate oh, themselves. Oh, absolutely. It out yeah, yeah. People on the internet are really mean. And so, like, you'll get lots of criticism. That, that's what I experienced. You know, I, I would go on the APBR metrics board and post a link to my blog post. And people would be like, why did you, you know, like, justify yourself, basically. And so you have, to, you have to either change what you're doing because it's wrong, or you have to say, no, I'm, I'm fairly confident this is the right approach. And then you really know whether you believe in what you're doing or not. And, um, you know, it's a good way to sort of, a, sharpen your skills, and B, you know, um, I guess, improve your ability to communicate. So for those that don't understand anything we're talking about, what would be the introductory resource you'd probably recommend them checking out? So, I mean, Code Academy is pretty great. but Code Academy is good for learning R. Um, there's a book by Dean Oliver called Basketball and Paper, which was written like, many years ago now. And that um, that's a pretty good place to start if you're interested in just like a very general framework for how to think about basketball. He has this really useful four factors model. And, um, and that's, you know, sort of, a, it's not what I call advanced analytics exactly, but it's, you know, a useful framework. And, um, and then, you know, there are a lot of bloggers online who do good work with the, with the data that's publicly available. And so I would go to the APBR metrics uh, message board. I don't even know the URL. You have to just Google that. And um, there's a site called Nylon Calculus that does pretty good work in general. Um, so check that out. Um, there are, I think, some pretty good massively online, massively open online courses, something like that, um, that uh, will teach you some introductory stats. Um, and, you know, it's it's sort of a good time to be starting this kind of thing because there are lots of resources that are fairly low cost and you can check it out and see if it's something you're really interested in doing. All right, well, they're breaking down the set out here, so I guess it's a good time to close it. So thank you so much. Thank you. It's my pleasure. It's been a pleasure. that will do it for this episode i want to thank david sparks of the boston celtics for sitting down with me and thank you to our sponsors harry's razors uh, don't forget to go to harrysrazors.com slash garden report and when you sign up you get that free trial package which is pretty amazing for a trial package it'll really set you up for a while uh thank you to david of course thank you to the sloan sports analytics conference for a, really a, an amazing weekend and for giving us a room that wasn't getting completely torn apart the entire time uh, coming up in the second part of our Sloan series from the for the Guard Report podcast, we will have Rajiv Mahaswaran uh, from Second Spectrum and Frank Wheeler for SAP, two men that have made a huge impact in the way that you and I, as well as NBA teams, are utilizing analytics and are utilizing the data, really a lot of the kind of innovations that have come out of Sloan over the years and the way that it's really starting to very rapidly transform the way that NBA teams are run and the way that we understand the game. So that's going to be two very interesting conversations coming up in the next episode of The Garden Report. You can follow me on Twitter at Jared Weiss NBA. You can follow the Garden Report, whether you're listening audio wise, iTunes, Stitcher, uh, YouTube, our YouTube page, CLNS Radio. Please subscribe there. You have all of our video and audio content coming out there. Uh, we will be back with another episode of the Garden Report. 
from Sloan very shortly. Don't get cash. No cash.